So this evening, I'd like to talk about something a little different. And uh, it could sound a little obscure, but actually it, uh, it's looking at something we hear a lot in uh, what I would call certain meditation, mindfulness, practice circle. And I presume you might have heard it and might have your own understanding of it. And is this expression, which I came across recently and decided to look into, and it is just be with things as they are. I presume some of you might have heard that. And you might have made your own interpretation of it. And recently I came across it, I mean I had heard it, but I came across it in a more definite way because somebody gave me an interpretation of it which I thought might not be totally accurate or might not be helpful. So then I am lucky to have good friends and I can ask them, where does this come from? What is it? And then I get kind of long answer. I'm very lucky. So where it comes from is just be with things as they are. Actually, it's something you find a lot in the Pali Canon, in the early text, but not exactly in that way. So in the text, you find yata butam jnana dasana. And basically, yata butam is this just be things, just be with things as they are. But generally, it's together with another compound, this nyanya dasana. And that generally is not mentioned. <laughs> so you just end up with kind of bits of it. Just be with things as they are. And so I, I'm not going to spell them with my funny French accent, but I put it on the board. If you really wanted to see how, what does it look like in the Pali, you find it on the board. Otherwise, I don't think it's very important that you know exactly how it's written because you have lots of squiggle and things up and things down and then even two friends send me two different ways of writing it. So that's why I think we don't need it necessarily. But this yatam butam, nyanya dasana, can be translated already in a few different ways. Just very... So one translation is the knowledge and vision that accords with actuality. So it's already a little different. Knowing and seeing things as they really are, getting closer to the popular version. Full knowledge and vision of the way things are. So you have a bit of it in there. But when you get, I mean, I think it's a little different to hear the knowledge and vision that accords with actuality to just be with things as they are. It's a little different. One could, it can lead us to different interpretation and it can lead us also to different way to practice. And so we, can, we could interpret 
these just be things with things as they are that we must just endure. Basically, whatever happens, just be with it. Don't think about it, don't try to change it, just be with it. Just endure. Another thing would be just accept. No matter what happens, just accept. That's the way it is. And actually, I don't think that's what it is about. And first, I think one, would, one has to be careful with this translation of are. Because in a way, the first translation that accords with actuality, knowledge and vision that accords with actuality. And actually, Bhutan can also be translated as grown, become, is born, is produced. And I think it's different in a way if you started to say the knowledge and vision that accords with what appears. And I think already you have something which is more active, which is kind of there is some movement. It's not just they are like this and they're never going to change, to they appear. And I think it kind of fits more with the idea of condition. Things arise out of condition. Because basically the knowledge and vision, so it's not just to be with things as they are, but it's actually is to, when something appears, is to try to understand, to try to look deeply into it, and to see that it's conditioned, and that it, see that it's changing. So I think there is difference with, you know, it just be with things as they are. And what personally I would, in a way, paraphrase, creatively engage with things as they appear. That makes you do very different things. And so I think it's kind of, in a way, sometimes we have this kind of thing that you have, like, it's like, it becomes like a slogan. But it's kind of nearly, is a slogan so appropriate? Is a slogan so useful? And so if we look in, in a way in our meditative experience, and tomorrow we'll be working with sounds. And so we'll just be doing listening meditation. And in a way I will ask you to be mindful of sounds. And at one level one could interpret it to just be with sounds as they are or creatively engage with sounds as they appear. And I think then it kind of makes a little a difference. Because often, sound, it's interesting, we hear a sound, and often we have a very quick, I like, I don't like. I want it to continue, I want it to stop. Or what you might have actually is the opposite, is there is no sound. What am I going to listen to? That's a little the problem with us at the moment. So then it's kind of, should I produce a sound so we can hear something, we can listen to something? But it's interesting, we hear a sound. And often we take it very personally. You know, like this sound, nearly, it's not nearly like the sound is attacking you. 
You know, they do it on purpose to annoy me. You know, if somebody kind of starts to, um, where was it recently? We were doing meditation. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. We were in Canada and we were doing meditation in Toronto. So it was in a town, but in this university. And so, you know, we start the retreat, 30 people are there and really dedicated and we're meditating, mindful, mindful. And suddenly, there is this bell, jingle bell, in a way. And it was something they do that month. They kind of exercise playing the bell in the church. So for 30 minutes, you had different tunes being played with these bells. And personally, I thought, oh, interesting. You know, how, you know, how can we be with this? You know, there you have quite a lot to listen to. And somebody was so upset, he left. You know, he could not meditate with this. But what was interesting, we just learned to, first we inquired, uh, is this going to happen all the time? <laughs> And we were told, no, 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 just twice, morning, afternoon, 30 minutes at a time. So then we kind of put the talk not during the bell ringing. That was a little tough. And then we had the, the, the bell ringing when we were meditating. And then we could either use it as a meditation object of listening meditation, or we could just leave it in the background, arising, passing away, changing within itself. And everybody else stayed. But even that was impermanent. After a day and a half, the the practice was finished for the week. So the rest was silent. But it's interesting that, you know, sometimes you could say too silent. Sometimes there is too much sound. But how do you take the sound? Do you take the sound as, it's against me. It's impossible. It must not be there. Or can we creatively engage as it appears because of this knowledge and vision that it's conditioned, it arises, it passes away, it changes within itself. And I think then you start to have a very different experience with the sound because it's less this identification. And actually... You listen to the same thing, but you're bringing a very different attitude to it. There is much more spaciousness. So the thing can arise, stay a while, and pass away. And so in a way, one of the things about the knowledge and vision, about the thing appearing, is actually about ourselves. To me, one of the practices of the mindfulness, is actually developing, exploring the condition that forms us. And this is one of the things we work on with the knowledge and vision, is trying to work with the flow of condition. And often it's called not-self. All the time, it can be also in certain traditions called emptiness. But if you say not-self then straight away you have the idea, I must find nobody. You know, I must, there is nobody, I must become nobody. And so you kind of work, how can I become nobody? Which 
It's a bit tricky. We can try, but it's a bit tricky. Then you have emptiness, the word emptiness. Ooh, emptiness. And it becomes emptiness with a big E. Ooh. And then you imagine a big void. You know, and then we jump on it, or suddenly it falls onto us, and, or suddenly we disappear. But I think, again, we could look at this differently and think of it more about how we experience it. In a way, not-self, emptiness, is just a designation. It's kind of what you could say, an abstract idea. And how can we experience this abstract idea? I don't think we can experience it as an abstract idea. I think the only way we can experience it, actually, is actually we experience ourselves as a flow of conditions. The flow of inner condition, you have the body, the mind, the feeling, the sensations coming together and what in a way kind of developed it, kind of, you know, made it up, who we are in this moment. And we did not just drop from the sky fully formed now. We have, in a way, this history. Each of us has a history as action, as cause, effect social milieu, cultural milieu, action we did, etc., etc. And so in a way what we are is this flow of inner conditions meeting the flow of outer conditions. And I think the meditation, the mindfulness, is an exploration of that. To see more and more all the conditions that forms us. And then we start to experience ourselves in a more, I would say, again, flowing way. Like some of the things are relatively constant and some of the things change in this condition. Again, it doesn't mean that everything changes every second and that all the different conditions are really, really kind of, you know, one minute I am a giraffe, next minute I am Martin, next I am just a block of wood, and next, you know, I am something else. Obviously not. There is a kind of a relative constancy within it. But within that, there is a change. There is a change within itself, and also the change according to the environment, how the condition of the environment. And so, in a way, this knowledge and vision is kind of saying when something appears, that it be in the inner condition, that it be in the outer condition, how are you with it? How do you creatively engage with it? And I think this is, this is what it's trying to say, this yatam, bhutam, nyanya, dasana. Not just be there, and wait for it to pass. I mean, of course, if everything is permanent, that too will pass. So you just sit there kind of waiting for it to pass. I think it's more kind of trying to creatively engage with it. How does it exist? How do I exist in this experience, in this moment? How can I be within it? And in terms of this flow of conditions, that we are, it's interesting to look at how do I experience myself 
in relationship to the world. And what is interesting is that a lot of the time there is kind of this feeling that we have to, we're isolated. We have this feeling that the kind of, in a way, the world is against us. We have to protect ourselves. So we have to protect these conditions, these flow of condition. And then, yes, we want the outer world to be there, but not too close, you know, and not too difficult. And so often we have this feeling of separation. We have this feeling that we are kind of like, there is this wall that we need to build. And then we look over the wall. Oh, yes, you're over there. It's okay. I see you. Hello. But, you know, I am here. I am safe. Because I don't want you to get me. And I think, in a way, the process of meditation is, in a way, dissolving these walls to see that, actually, most of the time, we don't have to be on the lookout for danger that actually most of the time it is quite safe, it is quite peaceful. And I think then this kind of makes us more, again, to see what is it that is really dangerous, what is it that is not. So, so for certain things, of course, I have to be careful, but not for everything to the same degree. And then in that way, we don't need to have these walls. We can be, in a way, more flowing, more fluid, in our circumstances. And also, what is interesting about some of the things we experience as a self is often that experience of self-consciousness. You know, when suddenly you feel self-conscious. <gasps> you know, and people look at you funny or kind of suddenly... <gasps> and it's kind of, you nearly feel there is something here there is something here, because it's really kind of generally feel intense, this feeling of self, to being self-conscious. If somebody look at you funny, or suddenly you make, you know, like you're maybe at a fancy dinner and you wear a nice white shirt and you're eating your soup and suddenly, chook, you know, and you have this huge spot, you know, green spot on your beautiful white shirt with all these beautiful people. And you generally are quite self-conscious, you know. How can I, kind of, you know? And you feel something. <gasps> it's kind of the sense of self is really heightened. And so to see that it's not that there is something there; it's more that we feel embarrassed. And so when we feel embarrassed, we generally have this strong self of self-consciousness. But it doesn't mean that there is something there. But I think often, because we might have often this kind of feeling, we nearly have the feeling that something there is there, and then things get stuck to it. That's what the problem is. You know, like what is interesting, for example, words, memories, especially bad ones, they get stuck here. And then time to time you kind of, you know, look at them. Oh, that was a bad one. Yes, yes, yes. You know. And it's kind of all these things get stuck more and more. And in a way, to see there is no place that they can get stuck. But it doesn't mean that they don't exist. It doesn't mean I don't exist. But it means that we could creatively engage with it if it was less sticky. And I think that's what the mindfulness is about, to trying that we're less sticky. So that when things appear, 
we can creatively engage with them instead of straight away sticking with them and getting kind of kind of uh, fixed, solidified, and often get into trouble. And also what is interesting with this idea of not self emptiness but turned around as flow of condition is to look at how do I exist? What is it that makes me live? What is it that makes me survive? And if you look, generally what makes me survive is not me. It's actually the food I eat, the air I breathe, the clothes I wear, the medicine I take, the house I live in, etc., etc. So generally our survival rests upon actually our relationship to the outside, what we can actually get from the outside for our survival. And to me, this is one of the important ideas about this idea of not-self or emptiness, which I would rather use the word flow of condition, to see that our existence totally depends on things outside ourselves. And through that, we can start to move out to the world. Instead of having this feeling, I must protect myself, and I am the one doing the protection, we actually open to the world which is sustaining us. And thanks to the world, a lot of energy is spent for me to be alive. And I think through that, knowledge and vision, then we can in a way be in the world in such a different way. And from that comes gratitude, the fact that we can survive in the world. We have our body as a means, but the world also provides the means for us to survive. And so through that, they kind of start to dissolve that feeling of so much separation. And more that feeling that often people talk about of connection, of interdependence. And that's what I was trying to do. I don't know if you caught it yesterday when in the guided meditation. I don't know if you caught that. I had a little, little pinch toward it when I said, you know, look into the breath. Look into the air that you breathe and realize that you are breathing the same air with everything that lives. And to me, just that experience can really make a difference to the way we are in the world. To see that it's not just my air, it's actually the air I share with everybody. Everybody's air goes into my lung and mine goes into your lung. That's why it gets a bit stuffy after a while. It has to be a little aerated. New stuff has to come in. And so in a way to see that, and I think so the knowledge and vision is not a dry knowledge and vision, but it's kind of an experience of this connection with everything that lives, with everything that we depend upon. And then this movement of gratitude, this movement of appreciation that we're alive, that we can 
continue to be alive and actually share the world with others, who also depends on so many conditions. And I would say that that is one of the roots of what I would call a creative, wise compassion. But I'll talk more about this tomorrow night. So now I would like to go back a little to the Yatam Bhutam, Nyanya Dasana I started with. Because, you see, it could give you the impression just be with things as they are. That you should not do anything. And this is what happened with my friend. She took it like that. You know, like I was suggesting for her to do this or that. She said, but look, I must not do anything. Just be with things as they are. And I thought, wait a minute. That's why I kind of thought I have to look into this. But it's not that. I think in a way, we, if we take it that way, then we become static. Nothing happened. Okay, I am just there. But then it's kind of more like endurance with resignation, nearly, that you kind of end up with. When actually I think the Buddha is saying to you know, investigate, see how you can be with the condition that you encounter. And so now I'd like to bring out one text, which is a short text. It's a Vitaka Santana Sutta, which you can find in the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle length saying, it's about the number 20, I think. And here, the Buddha is not saying, just be with things as they are. But it's very interesting, he gives you five ways to be with difficult thoughts when they happen. And each way is very different. So here you have really not just, you know, be with things as they are and forget it, but get involved, get creatively engaged. And so the title is actually uh, the Discourse on the Forms of Thought. And basically it's giving you five methods to be with difficult mental state. But personally I think the five methods can actually be with any difficult state. It's just kind of different way to look at it. So I'm going to, to just show you how... You could actively do something or not do something. Again, there is different solution. So the first method, the Buddha says, if there is really difficult mental state which comes from either aversion or greed or delusion, turn to the positive. And he doesn't say turn to the big positive. He says turn to the small positive. And each time he gives a simile, an example. And he says it is like a carpenter when he has kind of an object stuck in something. He can take a little peg, tap it, and the thing which is stuck will be liberated, will be free. And so what he is suggesting is that instead of amplifying with the negativity, they're really horrible, they're really so bad, it's really, really, really so, 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 so terrible, and just amplifying, he said, turn to the positive. Can you bring something positive in that moment? And something, for example, about somebody, if somebody did something which was unpleasant, it doesn't mean that they did not do something unpleasant, but 
if at that moment you remember something pleasant they did previously, then it will lead to less amplification and more creative engagement with what is it they really did right now. Instead of, they always do this, they will always do this, it will never change. And then, again, you have the amplification. But it could just make a little difference. Once I was, this often happened when you're waiting for somebody. You're waiting for somebody and they're not there. You know, They're not at the appointed time. And generally, we're not very patient. So we think, hmm, they're not there. Who do they think they are? And who do they think I am? You know, and nowadays what I do, instead of going into the shh, I think, why did not they come? And generally I phone. And, they say, and last time the person said, oh, I thought it was next week, same time, same day. <laughs> so I thought, great, now I am free. I can go and do something else. So anyway, just to see, can I turn to something positive, to something different, to looking at it in a different way? If that doesn't work, because it doesn't work all the time, the second method is to see the danger of that thought. That if you start thinking that way, you're going to a really negative place. And often that happens with us. There are some negative thoughts which are really triggering. And then as soon as we think it, then often we know, you know, 20 minutes later we can be in a very bad place. Let me give you an example. Again, we've waited. Nine o'clock. He or she is not here. Ten past nine. He or she does not love me. <laughs> 9.20. Nobody loves me. <laughs> 9.30. I hate the world. You see, and, you know, who knows the person might have, you know, be stuck in a traffic jam or who knows. But, you know, it's, it's to see that. And I think personally the mindfulness, I mean, in order to do these five things, we need mindfulness. There is no doubt about that. That's one of the key to this. And so in a way the mindfulness helps us to see which are the thoughts which are harmless. And which are the thoughts which are harmful and are going to take me to a very, very painful place? And so I think over time, we don't go all the way down, but we start to know, hmm, to make the choice. Do I want to go down that one again? Or do I make the choice not to? And in a way to do something else. Then you have the next one. And the next one is very interesting because the next one goes against everything we think about mindfulness. And that's why I think the Buddha, for me, is very pragmatic. In this one, he says, if, you con if the negative mental state continues, turn away from it. Basically, don't go there. And I think this is something we have to be very careful with the meditation and mindfulness practice and with the just be thing, with things as they are, is that often you interpret it as just be more with the thing as they are. So you have a great pain, go into it. Often there is this idea of depth. You know, it's painful, 
I must go more into it. And then actually you go more into it and then it gets more painful. Then more into it, more painful. Then you can't get out of it. And because you see, if something is intense, why think more about it? It's so intense, you can't stop thinking about it anyway. So I think it's to see, to focus on it is not going to help us sometimes. Sometimes, yes, we can have like a creative insight, but we cannot all the time have that. So I think we need to be able to have that possibility that if something is intense and is difficult, we leave it for a little while. It doesn't mean that we repress it. It doesn't mean that we abandon it. But just for a little while, we don't go there. And we just turn away from it. And we go and do something else. Maybe go for a walk, talk to somebody, read a book, whatever it is. We don't go there. And often if we do that, it creates a space. And then we can feel a little recharge. And then we can go back to it in a better place. And then there can be some creative engagement instead of <gasps> straight away feeling again stuck in it. Swamp that you feel important. You feel you can't do anything with it. You are kind of overwhelmed. But by moving away from it a little bit, then you can come back to it in a more fresh way. Then you have the next one. And the next one is to look deeply into the thought, to actually question the form of the thought. And the example is very interesting. The, the Buddha says, it's like if you're doing walking meditation and you ask yourself, why am I doing walking meditation when I could be doing standing meditation? So you do standing meditation. Then you question, why am I doing standing meditation? I could be doing sitting meditation. So you sit meditation. Then you ask, why am I doing sitting meditation? I could be doing lying down meditation. Mm -hmm. And then he says you go from the position which requires the most energy to the position which requires the least energy. So then it shows that it's kind of in a way questioning. So the questioning is not in a way trying to find a solution. Because often when we are in a negative state, we get caught by finding a solution. I must resolve this. I must find a way out of this. I must. And then you go round and round trying to find a solution, and often you don't. Because you don't have enough space and creativity to do that because you're kind of stuck, going around in circle. And here the Buddha is saying, look into the four, question the form of the thought itself. Question the languaging itself, I would say. Because often, with the mindfulness, we can start to question what I would call our inner language. I must do this. This must be right. This must be perfect, or whatever it is. And through that, we can kind of always we kind of bring more kind of fixity 
We bring more kind of attention. And I would say sometimes it's just kind of like, kind of, if you say always, change it to possibly. If you say never, at times. So trying to soften the inner language. So in a way kind of questioning different aspects of the thought itself. The way it's framed, the story it's telling us, is this true? Sometimes that's what I do. I am telling myself and I think, wait a minute, is this true? Is this really true? Like for example, if you're thinking, I am hopeless, is this true? I mean, you might make mistake, thing might not go your way, but we're not generally hopeless. We can read, we can write, we generally are relatively accomplished in different ways. So in a way, it's kind of questioning, is this true? What I am telling myself in this moment. Could I think about this in a different way? And then you have the last one. And the last one is about restraint. And the image is interesting. It's kind of like a cartoon. And the Buddha says it's like if you have a big man. And the big man is holding a little man. And the little man is going... But the little man can't go anywhere because the big man is holding him. And so, personally, for me, it's not uh, an image of of repression. But I would say it's more an image of restraint. And I would say an image of power. Because often, we're taken over by a thought. Or we're taken over by an emotional state or a physical state. And when we caught by them, we just sat. In a way, we reduce our identity to that. So basically, we're saying this thought, this emotion, this sensation is more powerful than me. But I think it is not so. We are stronger than that. We have more power than any one thought. We have more power than any one emotion, any one sensation. And so it's kind of like, if there is a thought which is really harmful in a way to restrain the thought or to restrain more the action the thought might lead us to. You know, like if somebody thinks, I'm going to kill that person. I mean, restraint is a good idea. You know, I want to go on a meditation retreat at Gaia House. I have no money. Let me go and rob a bank. I mean, you might end up doing meditation in prison, you know. <laughs> so maybe one has to restrain oneself. Or some time ago, I read this wonderful story about you have a meditation teacher and his wife in the car. And they have a little kind of problem, you know. Some words are said. And the, there is some tension in the car. And the guy is very funny. He is really, really, when he writes book, he's really funny. And so the guy thinks about an amazing rejoinder, like, you know, a remark which is so funny, so clever, that he's really tempted to say it. But he he has a remark in his head, and he can really see it's amazing, really funny, really clever. And he says to himself, "Mm -mm, 
this is a bad idea. <laughs> this is not going to help the situation. And so he restrained himself and does not say it. And I think this is what this is about in a way, about kind of seeing is this skillful or not? Is this harmful or not? And then in a way, using restraint. So in a way, seeing this yatam butam as this creatively engaging with what happened. And in a way, to see the meditation, the mindfulness, us sharing the space together as in a way helping us to work on that, to creatively engage with what appears. And I'd like to finish just by a small story. Uh, recently, uh, with Stephen, I went to a conference in America and of uh, Western teachers, and it was a really wonderful, very good conference. And then we left the conference by car with a friend. And so we are four meditation teachers in the car. And so, and being, you know, Europeans in America, with three Europeans, with a Canadian, we use a GPS, you know, and there is a late, little lady telling us what to do. You know, go there, turn there, do that. And then she sends us somewhere. And then she sends us into this huge traffic jam. <laughs> and we're going very slowly. And one of us has to be at a certain time somewhere to give the car back. And so it goes very slowly, and we see that, I mean, we had lots of time, and now the times go really kind of, oh, oh. And so we first, we're very Buddhist, and you know, it's fine, <laughs> we can be with this, yes, it's fine, we chat, enjoying being together, and then the time goes down, down. and then we, a little tension comes up, you know. And then you then someone start to say, oh, if only we had not followed, you know, the lady, and if only this, and if only that, and, and then you can feel the kind of things turning a little negative. And then very quickly we all look at it at each other, and then we say, come on, if four meditation teachers can't be, you know, mindfully in a traffic jam and creatively engage with things as they appear, what hope is there for anybody? <laughs> and then straight away, everything turned around. And then we were very differently, kind of just patiently being in it, going slowly, and also starting, in a way, to have more compassion. Because we start to have, in a way, what I would call the knowledge and vision that this, be going this way, there must be an accident. And there must be an accident and somebody must have suffered. I mean, us, we safe, just kind of a question of time. And so then the moods start to change. Then we start to feel kind of more compassion. And then we finally are by the accident. And then even more compassion arise. And so, you know, it was for me interesting to see how we could, in a way, get stuck. Or we could have this movement of creative engagement. So this is what I wanted to talk about today. And then I just have a little point about something somebody said in the discussion, and I gave a slightly misguided answer. And this, that was a question about the 
Chinese character for sati in Chinese. And it is true. The Chinese character is actually compounded, a compound of now and heart, mind. But actually, the two part of it does not really kind of means heart now. Because the compound itself becomes another word. And that word is what's used for sati. But in terms of the Chinese, it really means memory or it really means thought. Or it's also used as a character for patience and for endurance. And I would say rarely in terms of that term is it used for heartfulness. Because generally for the term of heartfulness, loving kindness, compassion, they will use a different term, jabi. And those two will have the little heart in it. But with with, with it, there is also this kind of like love or um, kind of compassion within it. So it's a very different compound for that. So I wanted to say that, yes, sati is more actually represented by the character of thought or memory or patience. So you were right in some ways, up to a point. (laughs) (laughs) So are there any questions or comments? We have a little time. Yeah. Yeah, about uh, acceptance, uh, the way things are, uh, I, I feel myself that I uh, first have to accept the conditions that are there right now before I can creatively, creatively uh, engage uh, towards it. So it's not um, a wrong thing, but it's only part of the story. So. But the, the acceptance, um, I feel, is a crucial thing in creatively engage in the situation. No, no, and I think I totally agree. Okay. Yeah, because I thought that's... No, I was actually trying to, 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 to show how we could understand mm-hmm. uh, that I think there is a difference with, um, in a way taking just be thing with as they are, as enduring things, accepting things, or not doing anything. Mm-hmm. And I think this is very different. Yeah, I must not do anything. I think there you don't, actually, you don't have really the acceptance. And I totally agree with you that I think actually the creative awareness we develop in meditation helps us one of its uh, characteristics is acceptance. But it's an acceptance which is not what I would call resignation. Mm-hmm. But it's more what I would call a light, warm, creative acceptance, which actually helps us to see what is going on. Mm-hmm. And of course, when we really see what is going on, then we can creatively engage. Mm-hmm. I would totally agree yeah. there. Because the, the my question was, um, I didn't find it uh, in the, the five uh, points of the Buddha, the acceptance part. So I was wondering why it was left out. 
Because, in a way, that's what I was trying to, to point out, that in a certain text, uh, it will be more about uh, accepting what, what is happening. And in other texts, it will be more about doing something. And that's what I was trying to point out, that we have to be careful of just considering just one aspect. But actually, it's useful to consider two aspects. But if, you, like, you have the famous story of the woman who comes and her son has died. And so the Buddha, instead of saying to the woman, you have to accept it, you know, just be with things as they are, actually what he does is help her to have the knowledge and vision to be with the thing as they appear. And he asked her, to go and get a mustard seed from a family in which house there's never been a death. And so she goes to many different houses. And then she realizes death is part of life. Mm. So, because she was asking the Buddha to revive the song. And I think what the Buddha was doing is making her accept it but what I would call in a creative way. Instead of telling her, just accept it, is that through the experience of realizing this is kind of a common thing, the death, then her coming actually to her own acceptance, but what I would call a creative acceptance. So you, you find the two different aspects. Yeah? One of the things you said about um, it's useful to remember that we don't have to protect ourselves because the world is sustaining us. It's, an, it's a really nice thing for me to remember to do because sometimes I think that might be what causes or underlies some of my problems is thinking that there may be, because I'm more vulnerable because I can't look after myself because I had to depend on the world and that might make me grasp things or believe that there might not be enough to go around because we have got to share everything. So it's quite nice to see that the other way because that could be the kind of root cause of some of the suffering. Um, and the other thing I was going to say was I was um, thinking about some of my habits earlier on today and um, thinking about how I respond to situations to do with money or perhaps time and also food. These are just three that happen to come up. And um, so I was looking at how I respond and whether it's helpful or not, or not to respond in that way. If it isn't helpful, then how do I let go of it? And I was doing all right working it all out up until the bit where I got to how do I let go of it and not have that habit. And then I just thought, well, maybe it's just enough to see it and then perhaps seeing it and understanding it a bit better will help it dissolve. Is that what you're sort of describing with the, the condition? Uh, actually, it is. Uh, so I think some people have not heard uh, what you've said because it was... So uh, the first thing the person said uh, was about the fact that if we see that we're sustained by the world, then actually we kind of move a little away from the thinking, you know, I need more things for myself and if there is less thing for myself and more for others and kind of, you know, we kind of feel a little less like that, and it kind of, we can re release a little of that and open more to the world 
and see that actually it's more abundant than we think in certain way, not in every way. That's what we're kind of realizing nowadays. But I think in terms of love, in terms of different things, the more there is something, the more it exists. Instead of being just a bunch, and if I get a bit, then other bit don't get it, or if they get it, I don't get. But I think really we can learn that exactly. In terms of the habits, to see it can help. But we have to be careful that this is not a program of eradication. (laughs) But it is um, a way to understand ourselves better. So some patterns, we might be able to see it, and actually it might go. And some patterns, they will not disappear. But what will go over time is the intensity or the length they will happen. So instead of happening for a week, they might happen for a day or might happen for 10 minutes, which does make a big difference. And also in terms of the habit, like our relationship with money, with time, with things like that, is to see that the tension you see, if you see the tension that it produces, thinking in a certain way about these things, then we can over time see I am partly causing this suffering to myself. Nobody is doing this to me. And then we start to do what I call creative engagement. How can I creatively engage with time? How can I creatively engage with money? But it doesn't mean that at certain tense moments, it might not come back up a little. This is one of the reasons, in a way, I decided to to do something uh, in terms of meditation long ago when I was 20 and traveling. I was in Nepal. I was in a bath going from Pokhara to Kathmandu. It was beautiful. It was exquisite. And the whole time in the bath, I was thinking about money. You know, I only have so much more left. How am I going to continue in my travel? And it became very clear to me that just thinking too much about that would stop me from being in the world, really appreciating what was there instead of thinking, being afraid in advance. And so, I mean, of course, things change over time. But it doesn't mean that Culturally, family, you might not have, over time, build up a relationship to money which might reappear at some time. Stephen once made some investment forced by his banker. I was not there, the banker. (laughs) And then, of course, you know, the investment went down and down. And so it became a ritual. Once a year, we would get, you know, how much he would have. And every year, I was, oh, all that money that has gone. I thought, you know, we could have given it to the poor people in South Africa or do this or that. And then one day, I decided, you know, this is it. This is, you know, this was something he did. That's a condition. And just laugh about it. I really turned it around. 
And so now every time he comes, because it's still comfortable, <laughs> I kind of laugh. I say, ah, great, you know, and then I laugh and I really don't worry about it. You know, and if I want to give money to South Africa, I give it anyway. But so it's to see that the thing doesn't mean it's totally eradicated. We have to be careful there to think that, uh, no, our condition can change up to a point. But up to a certain point, they also will remain there because of the way they came together. Yeah, it can take so, yeah, it, it can take some of the intensity, but what we have to be very careful is that it doesn't go into being passive. That's what I think we have to be careful about because there can be, I think, there can be that kind of moving toward passivity, and so I, I would say yes to accept and to think. I don't need to be perfectly 100% mindful all the time or compassionate all the time or whatever it is, of course. And to accept that at times I will be like this, at other times I will be like that. I have a tendency to be like this, I have a tendency to be like that. And at the same time, not using that to not creatively engage with what are the conditions that give rise to it? How do I amplify it? Why not amplify it? And so having more what I would call an exploration. So I totally agree not to go straight away to fix it. I must fix it. I must not be like this. Because that creates tension. And at the same time, not being too far away. Who cares? This will pass. This is impermanent. <laughs> you know, sometimes yes, sometimes not. We have to stop here. You have to do some. Now there is a little walking before the final city. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.